Welcome to the Secret Podcast, available on iTunes. And now your hosts, JM and Bernstein. Welcome to another edition of The Secret Podcast. This episode, we have another first for you. This episode, we will be discussing Image 3, Verse 11, the puzzle classically associated with Roanoke Island, North Carolina. Our friend Brian Zinn is going to join us to talk about that. And of course, my co-host George Ward is here. But first, I have here in the studio with me my new friend and also secret treasure hunter, going all the way back to 1981, one of the three guys to find the first cask ever. I'd like to welcome to the show Rob Robel. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thank you very much. Nice to be here, John. Thank you very much. This is a first for me, too. I've never been on a podcast before, so I'm quite excited about all this. I haven't been following the secret as much as everyone else has. I still find it very fascinating and interesting. So, uh... For the first time, we have both Rob and Brian on the same podcast. We're going to hear Rob tell his story about finding the cask, and Brian will be here to comment. George is here to uh, ask questions and comment, and it should be a good time. Just going to roll right into this real quick. The way it all started, I had a best friend of mine. We had a small group of friends that we played Dungeons and Dragons with, you know, and the whole fantasy role-playing thing. His birthday was coming up, and I had read this book review about the secret, a treasure hunt. Elves, gnomes, fairies. I thought, oh, this would be really cool. And if it's a real treasure, you know, it'd be fun to do. Never really thinking that we would find it. As we got the book and I gave it to him and my other friend, Eric, he got very excited about it. He went out and bought a copy. I bought a copy. Eric figured out, oh, there's one in Chicago. He saw the water tower on there. How did you find out about the book to begin with? I, I read a review in the Chicago Tribune about it. Author of the article, his name was uh, Eric Zorn. He's actually still uh, with the Tribune, I believe, so... Got the book. Eric figured out that it was buried in Chicago. We had gone on all kinds of, I guess you would say, brainstorming. And remember, this was 35 years ago. Didn't have Google Maps. Nothing on the computer. We didn't even have, it wasn't even a computer, you know. <laughs> During the course of a year, we probably dug half a dozen holes down in Grand Park. How were you, did someone have a car? Or were, how were you getting a, down there a, with a shovel? I had, I had a car. Uh, my friend Eric, he would take the L down. And he would ride the train with a shovel. When you're 19 in the <laughs> 80s, nobody really said much. But if you rode the L today with a shovel, that might not fly. Uh, <laughs> but um, So over the course of the year, we dug about half a dozen holes. Our parents were like, you're going to get in trouble. You're digging on in a public park in the city. You know, we grew up in the suburbs. We don't want city cops messing with this, whatever. So while you were digging those first few holes, did anybody ever say anything to you guys? No. Never heard anybody ever say anything. Never saw a cop or anything. It was just, you know, sometimes it was just Eric down there. Sometimes it was me and Eric. I believe David come down a couple times. After getting so frustrated for a period of time, he finally contacted. We're like, our parents want us to contact you because they don't want us to get arrested. <laughs> <laughs> and we're pretty sure we're in Chicago. We're at the right spot. All the clues. There's a few stories, and it kind of, in my head, what I remember hearing is that First, you tried to call them. Well, we the, did. The I got secretary, and she said, there's no treasure in Chicago or something. I, you know what? That part, I don't remember that too much. I just remember that she was like, he does his, like, we had to leave a message. And then I had to call back because they didn't, they never got a call back. And we waited like a couple of weeks and called them back again. This time we finally got through. So he said, he said he would send us a picture of where he had just buried it. So we got a picture of the ground. 
with freshly turned earth. Did you know right away where by it was? Mail. Yeah, we were like right in the general area within like 10 to 20 square feet. By the time we narrowed it down, and it is not a very big box. We go down there, we got five guys shoved in the back of a Chevy Vega hatchback. We got like two shovels and like a pickaxe. We're down there, we all get excited and we go down there. We dig this hole. It's a big hole. It's getting bigger and bigger and we're not finding anything. The third person to start digging in the hole is a childhood friend, Dan Rosenbach. Got in the hole. He's digging, he's digging, he's digging so much. He's like, I'm tired of this shit. And he threw the shovel against the side of the wall. And the picture that I have is the treasure still buried in the ground with all the dirt around, a sliver of dirt, like quarter inch, fell right off the front of it. And there it was. Did everybody's jaw drop? Dude, we jumped up and down. We were having a ball. I was like, we pulled it out of the ground. We filled the hole back in. We got in the Vega. We're driving back. I'm dropping a friend off. We're going through Melrose Park, Illinois. My one friend in the back seat was just bouncing around. And, you know, you got five guys in a Vega. It's not a roomy car. There was a cop behind us. (laughs) And I'm like, Danny, stop doing it. Stop bouncing around. The cop pulls us over. As we come over to the car, he's like, what's going on? I'm trying to explain stuff to him. He goes, let me see the guy in the back seat. Goes over, talks to him. Let us go. Sounded like just such a bizarre story. Yeah, we dug up this treasure, you know, and his... Did the cop believe it? Oh, wait, you had it with you. We had it with us, and we showed it to him and everything. Yeah, and he's like, he must have thought it's too wild of a story for them to make this shit up. (laughs) You know, that's just too crazy. So he let us go, and, you know, we went about our way. And Let me pause here for a second, because I want to bring Brian in on this. Rob was just talking about how excited they were. And I remember at some point, Andy, describing the exuberance that you were having when you turned up the one in Cleveland. He said it was almost akin to the Daffy Duck cartoon where he's grabbing the pearl going, mine, mine, all mine. (laughs) It's all mine. (laughs) Could you describe what that was when you were like, oh, this is it. This is really it. Right. How did you feel when you did it? Well, that's Andy's exaggeration about the mine all mine. <laughs> I was just, uh, you have to realize, I was looking for it for 22 years. Uh, uh, words cannot describe how I felt finally finding this thing, because at the time, we didn't even know that the Chicago treasure had been found. And a lot of people thought the whole book was a hoax. <laughs> and for us to actually have found this treasure, I mean, I was elated. I was, I, I don't know what the words are. I mean, I, it was just a surreal feeling. It's surreal is a good word. I can't believe it's actually happening. You know, that was me as an adult finding that. I, I don't know. How old were you, Rob? I like 19 years old, fresh out of high school. Okay. Between the different jobs we had working part-time at a gas station, or I was working on the trade floor as a runner. Actually, the following year, like all three of us went in the military. Eric, Dave, and myself all went military. Okay. It was just like the next thing in life. It was like, oh, it was something we did as kids. (laughs) Well, I had lost contact with Eric after some time, and I had found the website Quest for Treasure. Saw all these threads on there about it, and that's where I found out about you. I think I was looking for you. We were all looking for you. (laughs) We didn't know if the Chicago treasure really had been found. And, you know, that's the one big question I had for you in this podcast is, where the heck were you? Why weren't you looking on the internet for us? <laughs> you know, I just thought, you know what? We had our treasure and we, we had our 10 minutes of fame in the newspaper and the TV here in Chicago. And that was it. And it was just something that was, oh, it was a cool story to tell. I thought, you know, 
Brian, I know you hit, it was just you and, and um, your friend working on it. Here it was just myself, Eric, Dave, my brother Tim, our friend Dan. We kind of all thought about it together because we were the group that played Dungeons & Dragons together. So we had multiple sources of input from young, dumb, stupid kids <laughs> that were like, oh, this is <laughs> Were you surprised that it was still going strong after all those years? When I found Quest or Treasure and I saw that Brian had found one too and then I saw the other people looking for things... I thought that was pretty cool. I was on Quest for Treasure for a while. Then I got more involved with my career. Broker at the Chicago Board of Trade. So like I said, it was a, it was a story that had happened in the past. So it was a fun story to tell. But I always, I'm so glad I kept everything and have everything now too. I think people come into this thinking, you know, this is simple. I can solve it. This is in my hometown or it's somewhere near me. And then they make friends. And, you know, the friends is what keeps them around. There's so many people on Quest for Treasure now that I consider really close friends. And now, since Expedition Unknown's come out, there's a couple of them on Facebook that I consider really close friends. I think that's what it is. It's the community more than the treasure that keeps people around. Right. I think it would be very sad if we found all the treasure. I think the core group on Quest for Treasure would find another one. Just find some other treasure to work on. Right. Well, even if they were all found, I'm sure there'd be a faction that would argue that they're not found. (laughs) The way things go in this. We've already had people saying that Brian was wrong, so. I was just speaking with John about this earlier because when we found it, we were interviewed on TV and for the newspaper where M and B are set in stone. To us, as kids living in Chicago, we thought man and beast. When we were on Quest for Treasure and I was talking about Man and Beast being M&B, people were like, no, 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 you're wrong. It's supposed to be Mozart and Beethoven. He even said that in an interview. And I was like, you know what? It might be that, but this is the way we figured it out. So you guys can argue about it all you want, (laughs) but we already got our treasure. You might be right, but, you know, one of us has a cask. Right. (laughs) So you dug the thing up, you get out of the park, you get pulled over by the police, you somehow get out of that. Right. <laughs> and then... We had contacted the Tribune again about, um, the, hey, we dug up the treasure that you had in this book review the year before. They said, oh, we'd love for you to come in. And it's, those are the newspaper clippings that people see. We were like, well, when are you going to publish this? Oh, this Saturday. And we're like, uh, we're going on a fishing trip down to Arkansas. Could you like wait a week until we get back? And no, no, this is an important start. We got to get this out there. So we went on our fishing trip anyway. And, uh, you know, we're out there on the boat one day, you know, that Saturday morning, the owner of the resort comes out on his boat and says, hey, is there Bob, Eric, or Dave out here? And we're like, uh, yeah, that's us. Yeah, Channel 7's on the phone. They want to talk to you. <laughs> Tell them we'll call them back when we get back to Chicago. <laughs> and so that's when we went on TV. You know, I just, that was, yeah, like our 15 minutes of fame. Like I said, the years go by and I was on Quest for Treasure and, and then the whole thing with Josh Gates and I work part-time at a retailer. And I guess a little kid had seen me on it, and his dad came up and said, he wants to take a picture with you. And I was like, absolutely. (laughs) Treasure hunting is fun. Uh, You guys have been on, what, a documentary and a TV show now together? Have have you guys ever met in person? We we have never met. This is first face-to-face over the video that I saw him earlier. But, I mean, I'd seen him on TV from the thing, but... This is the first time we'd actually talked in what more, like I said, Brian, what more than the decade when I called you? Right. Yeah, definitely. This is the first time that I've heard that there were more than three people involved in Chicago. I've only heard that three people were involved, but there were a lot more, I guess, five or six. At least five. There was the the core group of myself, Eric and Dave. My brother, Tim, he played D&D with us too, and he got involved. 
I mean, we were a relatively tight-knit group, all went to the same high school. Childhood friend Dan played D&D with us a few times. He got involved with it, and then I think there was a neighbor kid that came down and helped us dig one time because he would play D&D with us on occasion, too. But, I mean, we were the three main characters, Dave, Eric, and myself. And who has the cask now? I do. I am the keeper of the cask. All this time, or uh, you take turns, or what? At one point, I believe we did take turns, and Eric had it for a while. Dave had stayed in the military. It would probably wouldn't be a good idea for him to be carrying a cask around because he's quite... He moves quite a bit, but they're all good with me keeping the cask. I had told John the story about what happened to the emerald, so I'm going to share this just real quick. I did have a roommate at one time who had addiction problems. I remember showing the emerald one time, and then the next time I went to go show it, the emerald was missing. I confronted him about it. He denied it, so there was nothing, there was nothing I could really do. And like I said, this, this was like 20 years ago, so I have been working on um, putting money aside to get a new emerald. The first time I met John, we went to go see a jeweler that day, and it's a guy that I know got an emerald for me, and it's about half paid off. It's being replaced. By the time this podcast goes live or whatever, how do you call it? It drops. When it drops. (laughs) I should have an emerald within the next, like, week or two, like, like next two weeks or so. I had a good look at it while we were there, and it looks exactly like what's in the in the painted image. You said it was the same cut and everything, it's, right? It was the same cut, the original emerald. It wasn't as good a quality as this one. The bottom point, the underside of the emerald cut emerald, it appeared off center a little bit, and it did appear there were like a couple occlusions inside the emerald itself. How did he send it to you? When it was in it? regular mail. <laughs> it was, I mean, he sent us the picture in regular mail. I sent... I'd send him the key in regular mail. I think we might have even had bubble envelopes back then because I think that's how I sent it to him. But yeah, everything was done by mail and phone. I had a deaf phone that had a dial on it that would go all the way around. So he had to actually dial a phone. Right. <laughs> There's three questions that have been posed online that all tie into this. You did send your key back, so you don't have the key anymore. That is correct. Do you remember what color was your key? You know what? Don't even recall. I know it was the white plaster cast type thing. I can't remember if any portion of the key was painted. I have seen the pictures of the painted key. I've seen pictures of the new painted cask. And Brian, I wanted to ask you this too, because uh, just a portion of my cask was painted. From what I recall, part of your cask was destroyed a little bit. Is that correct? Yeah, the whole top part was destroyed, the lid. Is there anything on the side that was painted, if you could remember? Yes. And do you still have yours? Yeah, how it works is there are 12 characters on the outside. Depending on which treasure you find, that character is painted. And mine was a centaur. I think yours was like a troll or something. It looked like a guy with a wolf. A big cross on his chest like he was wearing a cape type thing. Yeah, I think that was a troll, or at least that's how I interpret it. I thought I read that somewhere, but I don't know. I I would have to go back and look in the book again. Mine was a little centaur, and it was painted mostly orange, and my key was orange. There's a bit of a rumor going online that the gem was actually stolen by someone who helped you find the cask? No, not at all. Good, good. The person that I believe stole it, the person that was my roommate at the time, he was somebody that I met quite some time afterwards when I worked on the trade floors, and we became roommates. So he was not a part of the treasure at all. All right. Well, at least that that clears that up. I think people were starting to look down on some of the other guys because they were thinking that uh, one of the people that worked with you had stolen the gem. So at least that clears them. 
Oh, you're still friends, right, with uh, Eric? And... With everybody, yeah. 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 Okay. Except uh, the one guy who's our neighbor, I, his name was Eddie Douglas. I have lost contact with him years, years ago. Everybody involved actually ended up going military. <laughs> he was, Eddie was a Marine. My friend Danny, he was uh, Army. He'd actually been in Iraq. My friend Dave, Iraq, Afghanistan, he did 22 some odd years in wow. uh, private security afterwards. So he's fully fledged in that. Um, Eric did some time with Special Forces. I did 11 years total, former 101st Airborne, and my brother was 82nd Airborne. So it just tied in that we were all together. That's all. Well, military interest was pretty high. That was the beginning of the Reagan years. It's I mean, Cold War was, and all yeah, that. Yeah, I was in Europe was... during, uh, you know, 84 to 86, during the height of the Cold War. Wow. I was in diapers then. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this. There was some correspondence between Byron and yourself. First of all, there was a male snafu where you had sent him your original letter, and that this is what prompted you to call him, right? You sent a letter, nothing ever came back, and there was no response. So you guys decided so, to call. Yeah, something, yeah, because I had drawn a map. I think I showed you, and I made a copy of the map. I think he uh, sent it back with the picture, but we had drawn out a, just a quick little map of the treasure ground right behind Lincoln and the 10 by 13 trees. Because, like, the first time we called, we didn't get a response. So we called again, finally got him. And he said, you know, send me what you have to show how close you are. And then that's when he sent us the picture with the copy of my map back. And I'm really reaching here now because I'm trying to remember. He did ask for the picture back. So after we went down and dug it up, we sent him the picture back with the key. And that's when he sent us the gem. So I didn't get to keep the key, but. Did you ever get to meet him? Never got to meet him. I mean, I spoke with him on the phone that like that one or two times about it. And I remember his words were like, you're right on top of it. I don't understand why you can't find it. Something along those lines. Wow. He said that? Something along that. He's like, you're right on top of it. I can't understand why you can't find it. Wow. That's so cool. that's how that's how close we were. Rob, do you remember what was in the uh, photo? Was the fence in the photo as well? Was the the electrical fixture box and the fence halo in the photo in the, that Byron that he sent you? us? Yeah. Oh, dude. <laughs> Can you I remember? Just can't remember that <laughs> back. But was, I mean, because we sent him the picture. He asked him for us to send the picture back. So, I mean, he sent it to us. We were like, okay, we're all going down this weekend. We're all going to take this home. We dig the hole. We found everything. We sent him the picture back with the key. So, I don't, we had the picture that he sent us. For a very short period of time. I don't recall if it did or not. Was it a Polaroid or was it a photo? Do you remember that much? I want to say it was a Polaroid. Nice. Brian, your meeting with him was a little bit different. You met him in person and he was kind of forgetful and didn't remember a lot of things. But you said that one of the things that you remembered him saying in with regards to the Chicago treasure is it was 10 by 13 feet. Now, do we think that that's a mistake that he made? I think so. I think that he's just, I mean, it had been 22 years. You have to realize where we were at the time when we were talking. We were waiting for his car to pick us up. We were standing on the side street in New York City, just looking through a book and just like chit-chatting. I figured, hey, this is a great time to try and get some information out of Byron Price. He was flipping through pages, and I was asking him about different things. That was one of about 15, 20 different things I was asking him. At the time, I'm pretty sure I did not know what 10 by 13 was. When he told me it was feet, I went back and typed on the Quest for Treasure bulletin board, 
I tried to remember everything he told me while it was fresh in my mind, and that was one of the things that I typed down. That's what he told me. You couldn't have asked him what years past rainfalls meant. It'd be like, what's 10 by 13? <laughs> I was asking him everything I could think of, but it was, uh, you know, it was noisy, you know, lots of cars. It's New York City. I think that's lawyer speak for, of course I asked him what years past rainfalls means. <laughs> and I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I can either recall or deny it this time, Senator. <laughs> the big controversy is trying to determine where exactly that dig spot was. And yeah. Rob and I had talked about this. Uh, trying to figure out whether he was vetting people and then giving them the spot or whether he did leave a instructions for a two by two or one by one spot that you would dig at. And we were trying to use Chicago to deduce if that was the case or not. And I think that without Byron being alive and with this being so long ago, 35 years, I mean, Eric has one recollection, Rob has another, I'm sure Danny probably has a third recollection of what happened. So I guess it's just going to remain a mystery, George. What do you think? I think it's going to remain. It's been too long. Nobody's, you know, you're not going to be able to find that one by one spot. I think it's just been too long. If there weren't pictures taken, and the picture that you guys had is a fantastic picture. The cast sitting there, you can it see is. how deep it's buried. You can see the, the whole side of it exposed. I mean, it's a great picture. It just doesn't have anything above the grass line. Right. I was, you know, I wasn't, a, I wasn't a fantastic photographer back then. I think something else people have to remember too, is it wasn't the only hole you guys dug. You dug multiple holes. We dug half a dozen easy. Yeah. If you ask me exactly where some hole was that I dug a year and a half ago, I'm not going to be able to tell you exactly. Exactly. You know where that hole in new Orleans is that you dug though, don't you? Yeah. But that was pretty easy to find. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's part of the Chicago one. In New Orleans, you've got two points of, if you line everything up correctly, there's only one place you can go. So with Chicago, with the fence and fixture, if you line both of those up correctly, you're there's not a big amount of ground to dig. Right. There's not a big discrepancy there at all. Right. Do you have had a chance to listen to the translations of some of these Japanese hints? Was there anything mentioned in there about Chicago and the 10 by 13, or was that kind of left blank? I could tell you that I uh, listened to the translations. They talk about M and B, and the hint is that it involves two composers. Congress is a proper noun. Right. And then they talk about R and L being politicians. They also talk about rumble, brush, and hush, and what those mean. You got to be careful with the Japanese translations because they say R and L are one politician. Even though these are translated and they're translated from Byron's words, there's still a little bit of error in there. We know that because R&L are not one politician. You know, they're two. That also mentions critical politicians. M meaning presidents, I would assume. They were both presidents. Yeah, maybe. But there was no—the translation doesn't talk about 10 by 13 at all. Well, you know, I think that since, Brian, you've had a chance to review the translations and George has had a chance, I think at some point in the next couple of weeks we might, maybe uh, you can come on with George and myself and maybe we can even find another to discuss these translations. We'll do a whole other uh, separate podcast, like a special report on it. So here's the thing with the translations. Golden Gate found one book and he found one Japanese book. There's actually two. There's two of these books, and they look marketed at different people. The one that has the cover like we're used to looks like it's marketed towards older people. And there's this one that we've sort of nicknamed the J-pop edition that looks like it's marketed towards younger people. We haven't gotten in that version yet. 
we don't know if the hints are different in there. So I want to wait until we have both of those before we have the conversation about the hints. So we at least know that both books are the same or both books are different. We at least got the first copy translated. So that copy's online if anybody wants to listen to it. Where can they find that at, George? Uh, it's on the Facebook page. We posted it to Quest for Treasure. I've posted it just about everywhere I can think of to post it. So um, we'll put it up on our website as well. Um, if you go looking for it, you'll find it. Before we finish up with Rob's story, and I want to thank you for coming down and, and talking about this. Let me ask you just one more quick thing. Since all of this has happened. There's been the documentary footage that you filmed that we saw you up in Milwaukee, up in Lake Park with James right, trouncing with James, around. Right. And then there's also been the Expedition Unknown. Have you gotten any, uh, aside from the one person who, the kid who recognized you at your work, have you, do you get letters from time to time? This is something I wanted to ask you and Brian both about. Do you get weird random notes from people just out of the blue, being as your status in the... In the Online, community? yeah, I do. And I'm not that technologically savvy. I would consider myself more old school. I don't even... I got a smartphone. I didn't even really know how to use it all that well. But I got Messenger on here. So every once in a while, I'll get something on Messenger or on like Facebook. Oh, yeah, I'm just uh, wondering, like, what do you thought about this or what do you thought about that? Uh, I wish you good luck with everything. It sounds like it would be a nice lead, you know. I want to encourage people to have fun and go do this. I really do wish them luck. You know, and I got my Facebook and Messenger on lockdown. You can't really get to me unless, you know, you know me through somewhere or if I'm on a page somewhere that might be. But I'll be looking for more that I'll probably be getting now with this coming up, too. And I'm sure people will have lots of questions. How about you, Brian? Do you get much... Oh, yeah. People can find me easily. <laughs> I just got an email today saying they know exactly where it is in Florida, in St. Augustine. They always know exactly where it is. And they would like to talk to me about it over the phone. And I have gotten about 50 other emails just like that. Go for it, I tell them. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I'm Brian's assistant. I'll get emails and they're like, can you get this to Brian? Or if it's in New York, it's like, can you get this to Andy? <laughs> it's crazy. It's it, But, you know, we do what we can to help. I had one person from New York ask if he could hire me so I could write letters to get permits to dig in New York. Like, <laughs> not, not to hire me to consult with him. But just as an attorney, to, to just to get the permit. <laughs> I think I'm, I'm going to have to hire you to get me out of jail for digging holes in New York. So if you don't mind that, <laughs> Andy might be better to ask about that, right? Andy might be better. He's got the in with the judges, apparently. <laughs> oh, but no, right. I was going to ask real quick. I thought I'd seen a couple articles about San Francisco where people were digging in the news, saw it in the newspaper. But I mean, are there really that many people out there still digging and looking in these places? I mean, just to give you some numbers, we have between two and 4,000 people that listen to the podcast every month. <gasps> We've got a lot of Facebook pages, but total, there's probably like 1,500 people on the Facebook pages. Wow. So there's at least that many. Yeah, it gets a little intense and there's more coming in today. I, was there another rerun? You know when they've rerun the episode because there's at least six people who know exactly where they're at. And if there's an article online or, or there's an article in a newspaper or whatever, you know exactly where it is because so there was an article, there was something in the New York paper today, right? And we got a uh, just a, a whole bunch of people from New York wanting to join. Today. There was a newspaper today. So there was there was the podcast in San Francisco, then a bunch of people from San Francisco tried to join. That's just kind of the way it goes. Oh, that is amazing. To be fair, I think I did that as well when I first, I, I knew right where it was within the first week. 
<laughs> well, so do we in our first hole. Sam special, I guess. I had no idea. <laughs> Let's move on now to Roanoke Island, Manteo, North Carolina. This is going to be image three and verse 11. Is that correct, or do I have them backwards? That's correct. The image of the knight or the suit of armor that's uh, hoisted up on a pedestal. I'm sort of recusing myself from digging any further holes because of the the new uh, projects that I'm taking on, but uh, I am going to still hang around and help with the podcast. With this one, I'm going to let Brian and George kind of take the lead on it, and I'll comment on what I know. Obviously, I'm going to jump in and tell you that I believe there's a rebus puzzle inside the image. Other than that, I think Brian has had some firsthand experience down there. I know the area fairly well. I know Andy was probably the guy we should have had on here because he's been there as well, but we can at least go over the area and go over the clues in the image. We'll start with George. Why don't you tell us about the area, the verse? I think we're starting somewhere in the Kitty Hawk region, aren't we? On the Outer Banks, North Carolina? Basically, the verse is telling you to start near Kitty Hawk to go over a bridge and then essentially go to the Elizabethan Gardens, or at least somewhere near the Elizabethan Gardens. I feel like the verse kind of leads you right up to with the entrance and then kind of is a little vague. That's where we're going. There's a lot of people who have been talking about, you know, if you're coming from Kill Devil Hills and it, it wants you to look at a monument at the end of it, why don't you just go back to Kill Devil Hills? But you know, essentially what the verse is telling you to do is leave the monument at Kill Devil Hills, take a bridge over some water, and go to a park. Well, this is the one that tells you to ride the Man of Oz, right? So that's one of the clues. We can definitely put a finger on him using some uh, iconic cultural reference to point out the, the name of a path there, right? Right. So the name of the bridge that he's telling you to ride is what, the Baum Bridge? Baum wrote the Wizard of Oz. Right. So it's telling you, go over... Baum's Bridge. There's also the Baum Ferry. Right, there was a brooch too, yeah. Yeah, so either way, that then it takes you to the same place. Brian, you had found a whole bunch of image matches um, for Roanoke. I mean, there's some at the Wright Brothers Monument, and we're finding some more, but you found a lot at Fort Raleigh. From an old-timer's perspective, I find it very amusing, this Image 3, because... For a long, long time, nobody put this with the Roanoke image until we found, I think it was Catherwood, found the island, Roanoke Island, in the image. People said, we're sure this was Boston. They were sure it was Niagara Falls. They were sure it was Salt Lake City. There were so many different guesses for this image. It was one of the last ones that we matched up with Roanoke. I think this image has more hidden things in it than any other image. It's pretty amazing. And most of the things, I don't think we have figured out what they are. I think there are just so many things hidden in this image, especially on the suit of armor. Forrest Blight was pointing out a ton of stuff to me the other day. The the bumps on the armor, the configurations, the little maps on the inside of them. There's There's a key hanging from it. Yeah, there... There are lots and lots of things. I would say that there are about 30 or 40 things hidden in this image. Something that was pointed out recently was the uh, the star in the window. The star with the halo around it matches up to the Wright Brothers National Memorial. The uh, latitude and longitude of Roanoke is roughly 36 by 75. And you will see those in large numbers in the lower right side of the image. There's a giant three next to the big bell. There's a six around that bubble. 
and then the seven five overlaps each other in the lower right corner. There's also the number 76, which is also sort of a latitude or longitude, hidden in the red lobster-looking thing. The left hand, if you're looking at the image, the left hand has a three that it's making, in my opinion, and the right hand has an upside-down six to make 36. A lot of people think that the reason this image has hands going outside the picture to symbolize the outer banks. But as we know from the Expedition Unknown episode, I think it was Expedition, was it that or the James Renner episode? One or the other, this image actually used to be much wider. The painting is, is in reality much wider. Right. That's when I spotted the, when I thought I spotted the Rebus code, which I'll get into when we get, but yeah, there was a, a, a the border on that one was shrunk down and the hands were cropped out over the border, but it was a much wider shot on the original. Right. So there actually could be even more clues that were originally intended that we can't see from the book. Somewhere we've got a picture of the original painting without the borders cropped. It's a little fuzzy, but there's not a whole lot there, uh, but you can make out, uh, we'll post it online. You can make out the lines. Even though it's kind of blurry, you can still make it out pretty well. Okay. George, you were planning a trip to go there and check some things out. What did you find in the image, or what were you drawn to? So there's a lot of people out who are looking in the gardens. There's a lot of image matches in the gardens. Some of the planters and the flower beds are the same shape as some of the, you know, the decorations on the armor. And there's all of those trails. What got me is I've got this, like, keep it simple attitude towards these, which... If I'm being honest, this Japanese book is helping. It's making me feel pretty good about that theory. We'll see. <laughs> I've got this keep it simple attitude, right? I think where people seem to be getting lost in this verse is the in July and August, right? In July and August, you know, it has something to do with dare. And then eh, everybody gets lost. You get to the dare monument and you're looking for a path that beckons to Micah and Driftwood. Nobody knows what that means. There is a sign that's no longer there that used to be outside the Waterside Theater. <clears throat> and I believe it, it told when the plays happened. And that said uh, something like every July and August, the Waterside players, blah, blah, blah. Now, I don't know if that's drawing a reference to that theater or not or, or to that sign. It's an interesting coincidence. That sign's no longer there. Well, it, it, the Virginia Dare Memorial also says on this site in July, August... You know, and it's because they don't really know when it happened. It was sometime in, in those two months. I would say that Virginia Dare Monument is a more solid confirmation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's there. You can see it. The words are, you know, plain as day. I don't know. I, it, it just seems like after that monument, people get lost. And to me, that says, you know, yeah, maybe that's a confirmation of something. But if you're getting lost, you're doing something wrong. I kind of noticed that if you go to that park... You drive into the parking lot. There's a way to interpret the verse where after circle and square is uh, the parking lot because the parking lot makes that same sort of shape. There's like a roundabout and then a square parking lot. If you go into that parking lot, you can sort of exit the parking lot on Dare Avenue. There was one point in time where I was looking along the same lines as you were, George, and I came up with the solve for that riddle, the path that beckons. When someone's beckoning you, it's a dare. So we came up with Dare Avenue and, and went down Dare Avenue and walked to uh, one of those houses, I think the one that was just before Dare and John White Drive, interestingly enough. We found that same windowsill from the image. Total coincidence, I'm sure there was 
tons of windowsills that matched up to that same design back then. We went down the road a little more and found the house at the end of the block had a great big bell-shaped thing hanging off of the garage that was reminiscent of what was in the image. And then we found ourselves looking to the left of us was something called the Prince Woods. And we had put that clue together with that which may be last touch but first seen standing. I, we, I think we said footprints or prints or something. And so we went there and that was one of our failed expeditions there. So what did you have after that circle and square, George? I'm, I'm liking that. You go down Dare Avenue and there's a public path to a public area of the beach. Walk down there. See what's down there. That's where we went. Anywhere that you go in the Elizabethan Gardens, you're not going to be able to dig. And I'm sorry, in 1982, even though security was lax, you're not going to be able to dig there. You're just not going to be able to do it. You go through the paths, you're not going to be able to dig the nature trails, right? It's too high security of a place. It's too high profile. You're just not going to be able to do it. You're going to have to find somewhere that's public. You can't bury something like on the shore, There's been a lot of people who have said there's some trees that died and they've fallen down into the water and they think that the cask is buried under the trees. You can't do that, man. Erosion, that cask will have gone. It would have been long gone. He didn't put it in a... No. He put it in a safe place. I I don't think he would have put it that close on a beach somewhere or near a beach that would have, like you said, erosion. I don't... So ideally, you're talking about Roanoke and the Roanoke colony. Probably last touched or first seen standing is referring to a tree. When the colonists left Roanoke, they carved the name of where they were going in the tree. It was the last thing the colonists touched. It was the first thing that the people who were coming rescuing them would have seen when they got to the island. The Croatoan tree, right? Yeah. So we've got some people, we've got some friends in Roanoke who are sort of checking this out for me. Because, you know, Google Maps, there's only so much you can see. They've said that you go to the end of Dare Avenue and you turn left and there's public parking. It's a whole public area where people picnic and do whatever. That's where I want to go. I can give you this much information on that spot, George. And that is, for, for one thing, there is an archaeological site near there. I believe it's off in that Prince Woods area, though, but also, I think it was a couple years ago, that whole area was massively flooded. To be honest with you, I would be looking for enclosed areas. So far, Brian's was buried in a a rectangular plot of ground that was inside concrete, semi-protected. We now know that area in Grant Park where you guys were digging, there is actually an area underneath it. So the land that you dug was, that up I and mean, was, was enclosed in cement. Enclosed kind of like in a semi-protected area. Wooden road, right? He was a smart guy, and I think he put these in safe places. What are your thoughts on the people who want to dig back by the Wright Brothers National Monument? I mean, I totally agree with you. If you go see the Lost Colony play, then you know about that tree, the Croatoan tree, and the story of the settlers and how they were gone when they came back from England to find them, and they found the crow written on the tree and all that. It totally makes sense and fits the theme. I hear there's a a contingent of people that are over at the Wright Brothers Memorial now looking around there. What do you guys think of that? There's a lot of people who have been trying to dig up that replica plane, which is weird to me because that replica plane's like five years old. Why are you trying to dig up that plane? Oh, it wasn't even there? No, it wasn't even there. But there's a lot of people trying to dig that up. It's weird. I can take the last few parts of that verse, especially like the last touched and first seen standing. If you look at the monument of the plane, if you go back far enough, there's like a monument of a bunch of dudes standing around that watch the Wright brothers land. One of them's taking a picture and the one standing next to the person taking the picture is like touching the dude's back. I can see how you can make it work, but it's like five years old. It wasn't there in 1982. It's not buried there. Also, the verse takes you to Roanoke Island. 
I mean, there's just no way around it. Yeah. And it tells you to look back at the monument, not go there. I don't understand. I mean, I get like in Cleveland, it takes you to a path past the park and then back up, right? So that you can go in the correct way. Or was that Chicago? No, well, they both do that. They both bring you past it so you can go in the correct way. I can see that, but I can't see Byron taking you from a monument, down a road, across a bridge, down another road, into a park, and using, like, however many lines to do that, and then in one line having you go back out of the park, back up the road, across the bridge, and back to the first monument. Like, it doesn't make sense It's to like me. three miles, isn't it? Yeah. It's a crazy amount of distance. And the part of the verse that everybody is vague about is the part where it says, after circle and square, in July and August, a path beckons to Micah and Driftwood. It's not necessarily true that this verse is linear. He could just be saying, after circle and square, okay, that could be the parking lots, in July and August, just could be referring to the words on a monument, just to signify that you're in the park. It's not necessarily true that the path beckons next to that July and August monument, the Dare Monument. The path beckoning could be anywhere. It could be Dare Avenue. It could be somewhere else in the park. There's an alternate sort of theory about this as well. The path beckons to Micah and Driftwood. There was at one point, if you take all of the nature trails, you'll notice there are signs that point out, you know, the different plants that you're passing and and some of the history or whatever of, of the area that you're in. There at one point, I've seen a picture of it. God, I'll never be able to find it. There was a plaque for Micah in those paths somewhere. If I remember correctly, the solve that I read had you going right past that to an overlook with a bench on it. The theory was the last touched or first seen standing would be the bench because you touch it when you you like look at it, touch it when you sit down. Yes. Does that make sense? That's the solution that Andy and I came up with. We thought it was under that bench. You're talking about the Harriet Trail. Yes. That bench has moved over many years. It's not stationary. So if it is under the bench, we don't know where the bench was at the time. But yeah, that could be the answer to the riddle under that, which may be last touched or first seen standing. There are two wooden posts there that were sawed off and they supposedly held a sign there as well. From everything I've read over the years, it seems like that area by the overlook for the Harriet Trail has been dug multiple times. So... I don't know if people have just missed it or if it's just not there, but I thought that that would be a perfect place to hide the cask is that Harriet Overlook. Well, there is an image match right there. It's a map image match. And if you actually look from an overhead view from Google Maps, or I imagine from any period map, you could see the shape as well. If you look down where that overlook is, there's a natural rock formation that separates the ocean from the land. It's a rock formation that's shaped exactly like the spoon that you see. A lot of people think that that's the shape of Parapad Road. I mean, yeah, it is. It's the shape of Parapad Road is the shape of a spoon. But if you look on a map, you'll see this exactly how it is in the image. And that's right on that overlook right there. You'll see that kind of breakwater. We now know that he did use a lot of these maps when he made these images. So, I mean, it is of interest, but as Brian said, right, a lot of people looked at that trail, probably dug it up. I know the Virginia Dare statue's been dug up. The wing's been dug up. A lot of places have been dug up. The real key to this one, I think, is understanding what the clue is for the dig spot. Is it even in the verse? Maybe it's in the image somehow. 
What do you think, George? I mean, there's not a whole lot of clear instructions going on. It's all cryptic and riddled out. The starting point or the iconic thing in the city is given to you in the verse in this one and not in the image. Maybe the dig instructions are in the image instead of the verse. What do you think? No, no, no. I'm sticking with my the dig instructions are going to be in the verse. It would be far too vague to put dig instructions in the image, like dig right here. But there's five or six other image matches in the verse. Which one of those do you pick? Unless he puts a shovel and an arrow or a big giant X, I'm not buying that. It's going to have to be in the verse somewhere. I'm still with my idea that if you were in the right spot when he buried those, or you know, sometime in the 80s before things kind of changed, if you were in the right spot, everything would have made sense. I think our problem is now... Just things have changed so much. Signs have gone, benches have moved, you know, that kind of thing. Time has moved on, yeah, definitely. Cause it, but you do have to be in the ground. Me seeing this the first time when you guys talk about the play and all these different things, you would know that if you were a local and you lived there, it was like what we felt when we were finding it. And when I hear you guys talk about that, I'm very excited to hearing you guys. This is really cool. <laughs> you can come with me to Roanoke if you want. I always fall back to something with you Chicago guys. If you hadn't found that cask and we were still arguing about the Chicago verse, we would be arguing over what fence and fixture means, right? There would be people online being like, you know, what a fence is to keep you in a certain area. So what he's trying to do is corral you into this certain area. And then the fixture is trying to tell you to fixate on this one thing. But no, it's super simple. There's a fence right there. There's a fixture right there. It's just meant a fence, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's so, meant a fence is... Sometimes it's so simple it can slap you in the face, and other times it's like so difficult to figure out which one. But one of John's things is graduated difficulty of these puzzles. Actually, a lot of people online's things is that these puzzles get progressively difficult. But I mean, I don't, I don't buy it. I think that time has made these difficult. Time has made it yeah. difficult, absolutely. Because if you were there and you saw these things and you did it and you were a local, but yes, these were done 30 years ago and landscapes change. It's like years pass, rain falls in St. Augustine. That line perplexed is everybody. But if you're a local, you know that on all of the light posts were these little footballs that said a year, and then it was an inspection tag for the light posts. You know they said a year and whether or not it passed. So you would walk up to a light post and there would be like 20 oh, wow. of these things on the light post with different years and the word pass. Right? In 1982, that would have made sense. Now, not so much. We don't have, none of those light posts are around. We don't have any of those tags. That's amazing. And I think all of these puzzles are like that. You know, just because you find a perfect dig spot, somewhere that's obviously not going to be disturbed. You dig down two feet in the ground, you put your box there, and you write your verse about historic places that you don't think are going to change. They're still going to change over, you know, 30 or 40 years. St. Augustine, oldest city in the world, everything's protected. You need permits to put in a trash can. But still, in 30 years, everything's changed. The same with Roanoke. Paths change. This is not encouraging. <laughs> I'm but sorry. You know I'm sorry. The dig site in Chicago, though, it was in a somewhat protected area of the park. Also, Brian's was in a park where, what was it? A little garden area, correct, Brian? Yeah, that's right. How long had that little area been there? And... Is it still there? Yeah, it had always been there because it was basically in a cement box. Right. Okay. But having said all of that, Chicago, it was in a protected area of the park. But had you not found it in the 80s, we would have never found it because the fixture's gone and the trees are gone. That part's true, right. So say these puzzles work the way... Yours and Brian's did. Say they all work that way in that when you get to a dig spot, you're given a specific location and you're given a couple of things to confirm that you're in that specific location. 
If you take one of those things away, there's no really way to confirm it, right? If you take away the fixture from Chicago and you get to the dig spot and all you've got is fence, how many fence posts are there? And then how far away from the fence post do you need to be? You, you, there's no way to know. Well, it changes the consistency of the puzzle. And I think Rob and Eric and Dan found this out when they went only a year after the book was out. Yeah, this and come, was only a year. We found it within a year. And you came to find that one of the trees was not there. Now, that right. was another point of right. contention. Was there a tree removed? Did you see, like, area where there was a tree and it was gone, or were there yeah, only the, nine? No, you can definitely tell when they take a tree, because those, those are pretty big trees. They go in there with that grinder thing, and they rip out the whole trunk and everything, and then sure. they fill it back all in. So and there so, definitely were ten trees there at one point in time. Right. Okay. One of the trees. Gotcha. There was definitely a tree missing. If you go down to Grand Park, you'll see that everyone's, you know, it'll change all the time. The trees do change. So, they, see, that's what's making me think now about the end of 10 by 13. Instead of the 10 by 13 trees, was it 130 feet? Or 130 degrees or 10 just, feet from the wall and right. 13 so feet. So, that could have been another indicator, even if the 10 by 13 trees was wrong, maybe the 10 by 13 130 feet over the shoulder was right. I the, guess we're going to be going down we, to Grand we Park keep going. I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm ready to go, man, because I want to go back down and measure that. And now I want to bring a compass so we can Now figure. we circle back to George's Byron Price wasn't a very good puzzle maker theory. Over time, if the clues disappear, it makes the puzzle inconsistent. I don't think he really prepared for that. I guess we have to figure out what to do to prepare for it. Does it make the puzzle unsolvable? I don't know. I don't think it makes it unsolvable. I just think it makes it really, really difficult. Much more difficult than yes. <laughs> when you tell people, like, this puzzle is very difficult, they don't think, oh, it's because things are missing. They think it's because it's a little too involved, right? So they start going down these weird, weird rabbit holes and trying to connect these obscure things. When really all you need to be doing is looking for pictures of an area from 1982. You need to be finding what's missing. Not going, this leads you to this, which leads you to this, which leads you to Oregon or wherever. You, you see what I'm saying? Well, Brian, do you have any alternate theories? Uh, you said you thought it was over at that bench since then. I mean, I'll point out what I think is going on in there. And the one thing that I know about, maybe you can comment on it. I believe there's a Rebus puzzle happening on the right side of the image underneath the arm on the right side is a circle of objects there's a couple of keys some things that look there's like a, a bell there's, there's a, bell. a bubble one thing i learned about with the bubble if we look at the boston image that bubble seems to be used as some kind of placeholder like the bubble represents what the other bubble is next to. And in the Boston image, we find that it's referring to the beak of the bird or Beacon Street because the other bubble is by the double A intersection, which is the intersection of Beacon and uh, some other street over by Charles Gate there where it makes that same double A. So I've come to understand that that bubble acts as a this means this kind of thing. So I've taken a look at that puzzle what i think is to be a rebus code and i've used that bubble to replace the word i've never done it the reverse way because i didn't see any kind of puzzle over on the windowsill at all but i used that bubble to mean sill the closest i came up with was uh, key one which would be the key the clock time would be one key one and then the insulator what looked like bells if you are down in uh, Manteo or uh, near Fort Raleigh, and you look up at the telephone poles, they all have these giant glass, ins insulators. Yeah, glass insulator coupler on them, and that, that's the exact shape of that 
what looks like one of those bells. I think the other one may be a bell, but I couldn't come up with a meaning for that. But anyway, that's my two cents on this puzzle. I think there's a rebus puzzle there that means something. And I think that the bubble is a placeholder. It's obviously watch the skeleton's two bells. That's what it is. That's obviously what the puzzle means. And that leads you to, you know, Eugene, Oregon graveyard in, yeah, Eugene, Oregon, the graveyard in Eugene, Oregon, where Mr. and Mrs. Bell are buried. No, there's, look, there's a rebus in one of them. There's going to be a rebus in another. There's an acrostic in one of them. There's an acrostic in the other. They seem to happen in twos. I'm guessing that that's a rebus code, whether it's information that we need to find a dig spot, or maybe it's just information on how to find the city. I don't know what the purpose of it is. I can't solve it. I've tried reading it forwards and backwards and and all kinds of ways. I think I have solved it or almost solved it. Oh, this is breaking news. Thanks, Brian. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) What do you got? Okay. You start with the two bells. Underneath each bell is what appears to be a circle and a square. Okay. Possibly a a link to the verse as well. Circle and square are the two parking lots. The circle is round. The square has angles. You start with round, R-O, angle. Let's take the A. Then you have a bubble with nothing. You take the N for that. The number one for the clock, you use the O for one. And then key is K-E. Spells out Roanoke. Holy shit. How about that? You blew George's mind. (laughs) Now, I'm not too sure about the A angle part, but I needed an A. That's pretty awesome for on the spot, Brian. I say there's a rebus and George calls me a nut job. Brian solves my made up rebus and he's a hero. (laughs) Well, one of you has solved this puzzle before. Oh, I see. Rob, quick, agree with me. And also, also the circle, the round circle is right next to Roanoke Island in the wall. I mean, that's that's pretty good. It's in the middle of the rebus. So Roanoke Island is actually inside the rebus. And the thing to the right of it is an overhead view of the Harriet Nature Trail. It's right next to the number one, the, the one o'clock. And there are all sorts of other images confirming the Elizabethan Gardens and the whole Fort Raleigh area. On the left side of the picture, underneath his arm, is a bracket that... If you turn it, if you flip it around, it looks very similar to the wooden railing, which is next to the bench on the Harriet Nature Trail. Interesting. That's that's blowing my mind. Yeah, I have pictures of all this stuff. I can show it to you. You see his arms are being held up by brackets, and the two brackets look different. So I think the left bracket, if you're looking at the picture on the left side, I think that's a railing, and if you flip it around, that's how the railing looks at the Harriet Nature Trail. But it could be somewhere else. But I know that each image, you look at the image first to get you to the general area. Then you get to the verse, like George was saying, to get you to the dig spot. And then you have to look back at the image to see what's in the dig area. I think you will see some things in this image in the dig area. And if it's at the Harriet Nature Trail, that could be the railing. But I don't see anything else. Oh, actually, one other thing. That guy who's holding the chrysanthemum, to me, a lot of people have had different theories on this. It looks like possibly an overhead map of the roads that lead to Roanoke Island. But it also looks like a lot of the trees in the area, if you flip him upside down, He looks a lot like a few of the trees there, but, you know, almost anything could look like 
a tree. Aren't the hands where he's holding the bubble, aren't they the same shape as something on the Virginia Dare statue? Maybe the legs of a stork or a pelican or something that's on that statue? I'll have to look again. And there are other image confirmers, not from the dig site, but just that you're in the right area. On the left side of the image, there's this giant key ring with a key underneath it. At the top of that circle is like a little circle. That's an actual match to the Elizabethan Gardens map that you get when you go there. It's the Overlook Terrace. Interesting. So a lot of things are pointing to the Overlook. Yeah. And there's a fountain that looks just like the cross on his armor. A lot of people have said that his head looks like the head of a horse. So that's Nag's head. Ah, I see. All right. So you've, ch- uh, you've changed my mind. Let's go dig up an Overlook. Let's go <laughs> dig up an Any thoughts on the red, you know, what looks like the base of a palm tree uh, on the underside of the armor, kind of between the armor and the pedestal shooting down? Any thoughts on that design or what that might be? To me, it looks like the base of a palm tree. Someone found a sign in that area. I don't know if it's on the trail, the Harriet Overlook Trail, but it's in that area. It's called Spoonleaf Yucca. Okay. And there's actually a picture of it, and it looks like that. <laughs> the, the red thing. There's been some theories that there's a playbill for the play. The guy on the playbill is wearing, I don't know, a grass skirt. I don't, I don't know how you would describe it. But it looks like the red skirt the knight is wearing in the painting as well. I don't know that I buy that, though. How is anyone supposed to know what a playbill from, like, the late 70s at Roanoke looks, you know? And the other thing, talking about a playbill, there's also a playbill of a guy holding a bar across his shoulders with two water buckets hanging down on ropes, which is very, very similar to the knight picture here. Yeah, yeah, I've I've seen that as well. Well, if you look at his hands, his hands are almost in the same shape as the armor. I feel like that can't have been a clue that he expected you to get. After a season, that playbill's gone. In the 80s, it wasn't like it is now where you could just go find a picture of a playbill from, what, 1979 or whatever online. Like, once they were gone, they were pretty much gone. Maybe Byron didn't mind when clues got hidden. It could be that he just gave it to John Jude Palancar as just inspiration to give him an idea for a painting. Yeah, that's true. There's this big thing. All of these paintings are based on other paintings. And if you look at JJP's art, not related to The Secret, he seems to reuse a lot of the same like shapes or figures, almost like he, for most of his paintings, he's using something else as a reference. He's got a lot of paintings of women in robes who look strikingly like the woman in the New York paintings. I don't know so much that it's clues you're supposed to get as opposed to this is just what JJP used as a reference to make his painting. Yeah, there are quite a few paintings that inspire the images. At least it appears that way. I don't know of any famous painting that would have inspired this night, though, except maybe like a painting of a crucifixion or something. Maybe he sent the playbill to John Jude Palancar. Yeah, it's entirely possible. It was that playbill came out about the same time the paintings would have been made. So it's entirely possible that that was the inspiration. I don't know that it was a clue we were supposed to have found. I don't think it's integral to the puzzle itself. It's amazing how many things are hidden in this picture from the site, like the arms with the little ringlets or whatever that shoot out from the shoulders. Those are cannons that were on display inside the uh, Fort Raleigh Visitor Center. I have pictures of those too. Forrest Blight pointed out 
to us that there's certain inconsistencies in what seems to be symmetry going on in the image, like where you'll have things looking exactly the same on one side, and then on the other side where you'd find the same things, they'd almost be exactly the same, but one of them would be off. You really got to look at it closely. If you look at the rivets on the knight's right arm, all of the rivets are in towards his body. If you look at the rivets on the left arm, all of them are out from his body except for one that is in towards his body. It's little differences like that. I think it means the masons are involved. Right. If you look at the bottom of the windowsill, you'll see that the one on the right is angled more than the one on the left. The whole bottom of the windowsill, if you look, the one on the right side is angled 45 degrees upwards, but the one on the left is more like a straight up kind of thing. The one on the right's curved where the one on the left is squared off. Right. There's a lot of weird symmetry going on in this. Does that angle thing remind you of anything? I think we've seen that before. Yeah. Yeah, at the New Orleans site, the New Orleans painting has weird symmetrical angles as well. The pillar was angled the same way. It could be a very significant sort of clue, looking for something that's squared off on one side, angled off on the other. I think we can all agree on one thing for sure. This image seems to be a whole different ball game than some of the others. Like Brian said, there is a ton of stuff. And I know I've seen some of Brian's collections of image matches that he's found, and there is a ton of stuff. I've added stuff. There's a, I found some stuff on the door of the Wright Brothers Memorial. I found some stuff on the entrance to Fort Raleigh. I found all kinds of stuff. And so has Brian, George, Andy's found some stuff. There is a ton of stuff. We keep finding things, but we're no more closer to putting the two things together to figure out how the image connects with the verse in a specific location. Or are we? The one thing that Forrest Blight found that interests me the most is things in this painting that are also in other paintings. I think he noticed in the knight's armor where there are the little dots on the, the right-hand side of the painting, he noticed a four-leaf clover, which is also in the Boston painting. And I think he's found the four-leaf clover in a couple of other paintings, like why do we keep seeing these four-leaf clovers everywhere? Well, we also have the round circles in the sky with the plus sign or the dot in the middle of them. And there's also seems to be a big X in a lot of these, or some kind of cross or X in a lot of these images. People have postulated that there's maps going on, maybe treasure maps. I think there's more to see. And I'm betting it's a treasure map. <laughs> right? Am I right, guys? <laughs> I think if you follow this painting somewhere, you can find treasure. There are definitely puzzles within this that we just haven't figured out yet. Like, there's certain things that span all of these paintings and all of these verses that we just haven't figured out yet. There's a lot to see. The one thing in the Japanese translations that came out, the translator said that, you know, first you look at the paintings to find the city and then you use the number in the verses to match the verse with the painting. Like, that's... Nobody knows what that means. Yeah. No, if that is not uh, an error in translation, that's huge to know that there is an actual way with numbers in verses to match the verse with the painting. So there's definitely stuff in here we still haven't figured out yet. And another question to ponder is why are there so many clues in this particular image? Yeah, I agree. Why are <laughs> why are there so How many, many clues? Do you guys see in the painting just in general? Like right off the top of your head. I'm seeing like at least a dozen 17, maybe. I've never studied this one this much before. 
I think it's hard to know because there's so many weird inconsistencies with this painting that you don't know what is and isn't a clue. Like those rivets we were talking about, the one that's sort of off from all the others. Right, right. We don't know what that means, so is it, it a It might clue mean maybe? nothing, is though. It, it, it might be absolutely it, nothing. It's, it might know? be absolutely nothing. We know that there were extra numbers in the images, and we know that there's certain things in the images that point out numbers, and we know there's longitude and latitude lines are numbers in the images. This is the first I've heard of any kind of verse numbering. And in your book, George, in the Japanese tr- copy, are the verses numbered in any way? The verses are numbered. They're numbered pretty clearly. In the American version, you get like, what, two verses per page? In the Japanese book, each verse takes up two pages. So one page is the American translation, one is the Japanese translation, and they are numbered. So yeah, I'm looking at verse two, place where jewels abound. And it clearly says, verse 2, they are in the same order. They're definitely in the same order. And the paintings are in the same order. I don't know. There's, there's. I mean, it seems that there is a way to tie the verses to the painting in probably a simple way that we just don't understand yet. Someone a long time ago once tried to pair it up. It was the best pairing that I had seen that had to do with the moons in image one, I think they also borrowed the moon from image 11. Somehow it relates to the size of the moons and that gives you the number of the verse, how big the moon is. It matched almost exactly. The guy almost had it exactly, but he was off by like one moon. Well, there's a couple of them that don't have moons, right? Like Florida doesn't have a moon. New York, I don't think has moons. Milwaukee doesn't have a moon. Image one, I believe, has 11 moons in it. Oh. See, image one has 11 moons, and image 11 has one moon. And you put them together, you overlay them, and the guy almost matched them up exactly. I forgot how he did it. There's a quest for treasure thread out there somewhere. I forgot who did it. Sorry, I'm not giving the guy credit right now, but... Uh, It was very well done. All right. Any more thoughts on Roanoke, Brian? Just that there are just a ton of things in the image that we haven't gone over, but there's really not a need to because they all point to Roanoke. Yeah. Somebody asked if this was the the Roanoke puzzle or the Outer Banks puzzle. Um, I think we settled that. That that question's been answered. Yeah, (laughs) it is. And also, speaking of things that have changed on that site, I know there's been a number of archaeological digs there, but also there was a big fire in the costume shop of the Waterside Theater a number of years ago, maybe in the 90s. I believe that all of that area behind the stage at the Fireside Theater is all new. That's another area that if he was sending you to somewhere around that theater or underneath the decking of that theater overlook there on the banks, that's all new pylons and new stuff that's been put in there. As far as digging there, I think that now I don't know what things are like as of these last couple years, but I'm pretty sure that if you're there on the off season and you speak to the park rangers there, they're usually pretty helpful about steering you in the right direction and even, you know, somewhat interested in what you're doing. I want to say that the Elizabethan Gardens is the only park that I know of that has a standing page on their website dedicated to the secret that says they will not allow you to dig. It's very amusing. It not only says that, (laughs) but it says we have nothing to do with the secret. The treasure is not buried here. Rest assured. (laughs) How the hell do they know? (laughs) 
<laughs> Do they have a crystal ball? As Virginia Dare came back from the dead to tell them, there's no secret treasure here, only flowers. It was stated in the back of the book pretty clearly that the treasure will not be buried in any public or private flower bed. I mean, the Elizabethan Gardens is pretty much a public-private flower bed by definition, is it not? I mean, there are definitely matches there. I mean, there's the dark forest match, and there's the column, the you know, the stone column where the entrance is, which matches up to the pillar inside of the image. There's a fountain or something inside of there, a statue or a fountain. There's image matches there. It's important to remember, too, that the Elizabethan Gardens are a very defined place. It's only a small part of this park. The trails, the the shore, that's not Elizabethan Gardens. It's also important to remember the verse says, look look north at the wing and dig. So you have to be able to see the Wright Brothers Memorial from where you're digging. you got to be somewhere near the shore. Right. You can't see it from the Elizabethan Gardens. Growing up on a beach, if it's anywhere on a shore, like if your dig spot is on the shore somewhere, it's gone. Because sand isn't like dirt in a park, right? Sand is fluid. Sand's more like water. It moves constantly. So if you bury something in the sand and come back a year later, even if you bury it like 10 feet deep, it's gone. Well, it's a lot to think about, everybody. I guess we should wrap it up. We're running pretty long as it is. Brian, I want to thank you for spending some time with us today and talking about some of the old times when you dug up your cask, going over what you know about Roanoke. And we look forward to looking at some of the photos that you have to show us. Rob, thank you for coming down and spending some time with us. I have had such a good time listening to you guys talk about this and looking at new things. And I think we've sucked them back in. I just can't. We want to thank everybody for coming down today and spending some time talking about this. On behalf of George and myself, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Tune in next time for another edition of The Secret Podcast with your hosts, JM and Bernstein. Available on iTunes.